Sometimes a well-intentioned friend or family member might tell you, you can do anything you set your mind to. You can be anyone you want to be. Sometimes I'll hear parents say that of their children, that they can do whatever they want, they can be whoever they want. That is simply not true. It is simply not true. That's not to say that each of us can't improve upon some of the giftedness we have. It's not to say we can't alter some of our skill sets. But each of us have limitations. Limitations academically, limitations musically, limitations mechanically, limitations professionally. All of us have limitations, ceilings if you will. Ceilings if you will. And we recognize that. We recognize that when we're with someone else whose ceiling is different than ours in an area. When we hear someone sit down and play the piano in a way that we know we could never play the piano, regardless of the amount of hours we may put into it. Maybe at a concert. Maybe walking through a mall where someone's just sitting down and they're tickling the ivories. We recognize that when we're with someone whose business ability or capacity is just much greater than ours, where we could run maybe a small business with one or two franchises, and they seem to have run a $100 million empire. And we recognize that their ability, their ceiling is different than ours. And we go, wow, I'm in the presence of someone who's just that much more gifted than I am. Friday, I went out for lunch with a good friend, supporter of James North. He's an academic. We sat and had a hamburger out in a park. And as we sat there eating the hamburger out in a park talking, in his natural everyday vocabulary, he uses words that are between 16 and 26 characters long, just constantly. Now, I know those words. But as I sat there, I actually remarked to him, it's incredible how intelligent you are. I was just amazed at the regular usage of wordage that he just naturally used. And we all have those moments where we go, wow, look at how they play the piano. I, I, I set up our pool yesterday. Our pool heater doesn't work. The pilot night probably needs to be relit, but the pool heater was set up wrong initially by the company. So I need to flip the pool heater around to get to the pilot light, and I've called a friend to come and to do it. I just, I just need help. And when they come and they flip it around and they do all of it, and they have it all set up, I'll be like, wow, you made that look easy, even though I know right now I'm thinking about how I would do it, and it feels like it would be difficult. And we all have moments where we come into someone's presence and go, wow, I know I'm in the presence where someone's ceiling is greater than mine. And that's what's happening here in Genesis 13, and 14. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. Turn with me to Genesis 13. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot, remember that's his nephew, went with him. And Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. I'm going to miss a few verses this morning as we go through this, because there's a lot of verses. But we find out here in verse 3 and 4 that this is where Abraham had first built an altar to the Lord, and Abram, again in this place, calls on the name of the Lord. Now verse 5, Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. So quarreling arose between Abram's herds and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. Now I want you to note the text. The text is always critical. This is God's word to us. And of Abram, it says he was very wealthy in livestock, silver, and gold. Lot was also wealthy, but with flocks, herds, and tents. No mention of silver and gold. It's to talk about how superior 
Abram's wealth is to Lot's. Abram's wealth is that much more superior to Lot's. Abram has that much more. Abram is his uncle, and in being his uncle, he is the one that Lot is to respect. Abram is also the wealthier patriarch, if you will, in this moment. But there's quarreling that arises between those that are caring for Lot's herds and those that are caring for Abram's. And so they come to a resolve. Verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine. For we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Abram says to Lot, you pick the way you want to go. I'll go the other way. So you pick your way, I'll, I'll go the other way. So Lot looked around at the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor, which was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Now this was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. Now the two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked. They were sinning greatly against the Lord. This shows Abram's great humility. He's wealthier and more powerful than Lot. We'll hear about the power in a minute. But he is much more, exceedingly more wealthier and powerful than Lot. But he says, Lot, you pick which way you'll go and I'll go the other way. This shows Abram's learned some lessons. Now he'll still falter. But in the previous chapter, God promised Abram that he would grant him this land. And then God promised Abram that from him would come offspring of which his descendants would be more numerable or, or they'd be innumerable, unable to count. Then Abram enters Egypt and says, hey, this is Sarai, my sister, because he fears for his life. And when Pharaoh lets him go, he rebukes him. He's rebuked by Pharaoh for his sin. So Abram's learned a bit of a lesson here. He's trusting God. He's saying, God, I know you've got this. God, I know you can handle this. And so Abraham says, Abram says, sorry, at this point, Lot, pick which way you'll go, I'll go the other. He trusts that God is going to work it all out. And then note here, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but Sodom is mentioned on a couple of times. It had not been destroyed, and its wickedness is great. Verse 14. So the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and south to the east and west. All the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. He said, see the lot that land picked, uh, the, the, the land that Lot picked? See the land over here that you're going, getting it? He, he says, actually, you're getting it all. I want you to look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. You're getting all of the land. And I will make your offspring, all the land I will give to you and your offspring, verse 16, and I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. I can't even count the dust in my house. Constantly we're dusting in our house. I'm like, how every week am I dusting again in my house? Every week we're dusting in our house. I can't count the dust in my house, let alone on the earth. Go and walk the length and breadth of the land I am giving it to you. God continues to utter his promise. So Abram went to live near the trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents and he built an altar to the Lord. 
Now, note this. The Lord offers his blessing and his promise. And Abram's response here, like it was earlier in the chapter, is to worship the Lord. That's setting up the altar. So this chapter is bookended with the worship of God. But Lot chose poorly and listened to what happens. Verse, chapter 14, verse 1. At that time when Amphrael, the king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Keladomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of uh, uh, Gomorrah, Shinbat, Shinab, sorry, king of Adam, uh, or Adma, uh, Shebabar, king of uh, Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, all of the later kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea Valley, and for 12 years they'd been subject uh, to Gedalomar. In the 30th year, they, in the 13th year, they rebelled. So you have this uprising in Mesopotamia. This happened constantly. If you read extra biblical material, you can see that there were uprisings constantly, and we're misinterpreting often what these are like. We're thinking of this is Canada and America and Mexico. This is not what this is. This is Toronto and Mississauga and Oakville. These are kings of localities that would have been country-like in that day, but they're typically larger cities, and each of the larger cities or establishment that were granted to a people had a king. So these are close areas. I mean, when you think of this, you can think of Lord of the Rings, where each of the settlements has a king. What does that mean, right? Ro the Rohan, right? Where there was a king of Rohan. And it was an area, but there was a city, large town like in it. That's what's going on here. These are kings of large establishments. Chapter, uh, verse 11 of chapter 14. So the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their food they went away, and they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Did you see the transition from chapter 13 to 14? In chapter 13, Lot was living near Sodom, and he was the man of tent, right? That Abram was the man of gold and silver with herd. Lot was the man of tent with herd. And now we have Lot living right in Sodom. He's moved right in. He's moved into the city. And so he's carried away. All of a sudden, Lot is just carried away by these kings when they come and they attack. When Abram had heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, now this is a powerful man. He has 318 men born in his household who are trained. Trained. This is his secret service. This is his FBI. This is his Canadian Armed Forces. Abram's like... I need you guys. And he just calls them, right? And who are they? They're Bond, James Bond. And these 318 guys go out and they attack those that have taken Lot captive. During the night, Abram does it at night because he knows he doesn't have a lot of men, only 318, but specifically trained in combat. 318 men. During the night, he divided his men to attack them uh, and, he, and he routed them. He pursued them as far as, as Oreb or uh, uh, Orba, north of Damascus, he recovered all the goods. He brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and all the children. So this is similar to the account of Gideon later on in the Judges. This is, this is a judge-like account where Abram almost acts like a judge as part of 
the people of Israel as God is establishing his nation. And he takes 318 men, he goes up against the four kings at night, surprises them, finds Lot and all of Lot's possessions in the midst of all of the mess that's there, and he rescues Lot and all of Lot's possessions, and it would seem um, all the women and other people. It, it would seem that all the people from Sodom that were taken, these are the other people Abram brings back. We note that in a minute. Just follow the text. So they all come back, and after Abram returns from defeating uh, the kings that are allied, uh, allied uh, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. So the king of Sodom has come out because Abram's just gone, and he's gotten all the possessions back from Sodom and the people. But then there's this interlude. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Just pause there. Who is Melchizedek? Who is this guy who just shows up here in Genesis 14? He wasn't mentioned earlier. He's the king of Salem. He brings bread and wine. Is that reminiscent of anything? Bread and wine that Melchizedek brings to fellowship with Abram. So he brings Abram this bread and wine as the king of Sodom is coming out. And Melchizedek's like, uh, as you're coming out to me, I'm just, you got to pause here, king. I got some stuff to do. Melchizedek fellowships with him. And then as he's fellowship with him, he offers him a blessing. And then note this, then Abram gives him a tenth of everything. What is going on? A tenth of all the spoils Abram gives to him. Well, unlike Lot, who couldn't recognize God's blessing on Abram's life, Unlike Lot, who thought he could be anyone and do anything, Abram realizes that's not true of him. Abram recognizes in this moment that he's with someone who's superior to him. That's why he blesses him. Abram realizes that he's in the presence of someone even though God's hand of blessing is upon him, even though God has promised him that the nation will be built through him, Abram realizes he's with someone greater than him. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And so he offers him a tenth of everything he has. This is the beginning of the tithe. And he receives blessing from him. Not offering one back. He simply receives it. He's recognizing Melchizedek's superiority to him. Well, then the king of Sodom says to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. He says, you know what? You can keep all my stuff, but would you give me my people back? Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing except what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anur, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. He said, I don't want anything. Let the men who went with me, who led in the battle, have their share. But basically, you can have all your stuff back. And I'm assuming in this, all your people back. You can just have them back. God spares Abram 
in this moment from making a grave error. God allows Abram to meet with Melchizedek, where he fellowship was called Melchizedek, and in fellowshipping with Melchizedek, he recognized in that moment God's grace and God's blessing, offering to him a tenth of what he has. But then when he comes into contact with the king of Sodom, he knows the wickedness that's there. He's heard what's gone on. And he says, I want nothing to do with this. Even though the king of Sodom has said, you can have all the people. I just want my stuff back. You, 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 or sorry, you can have all the stuff. I just want my people back. You, you can keep um, all the stuff. You can be blessed with all the goods and possessions. Just give me the people back. And Abram's like, you can have both. I don't want anyone to ever say that I got wealthy because of you. In fact, I don't want your wealth or your people as part of my family and my descendants. I don't want their wickedness to contaminate us. I don't want that stuff to be ours. When God's blessing is on our lives, too often we are mesmerized by the world around us and what it offers in terms of popularity or success, in terms of how we should thrive, how the world talks about how we should live over and against what God says. And Abram's like, I don't want the wealth and I don't want the people. They're all yours. But I will receive Melchizedek's blessing. So now for the remaining minutes this morning, who is Melchizedek? Who is this figure that shows up here in Genesis 14 that Abram recognizes as his superior and Abram offers a tenth of what he has to and Abram receives blessing from? Well, he's mentioned in Psalm 110. David says this, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from a morning's womb. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What? David says, the Lord says to my Lord. So this is David who is a Lord, small l Lord, the greatest king of Israel ruling in his day, the greatest king on the planet. And David says, the Lord said to my Lord. So the Lord, he's talking about God, says to my Lord, who's David talking about? Who is David's Lord? Well, the one Lord is God, but who's this other Lord? David is the greatest military mind and might on the planet. There's no king greater than him at this time. Who's the Lord he's talking about? Who is David speaking of? And then he says that the Lord he's speaking of is in the line of priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You flip to Matthew 22, Jesus picks up on this. When the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they said. Okay. So the Messiah will come from the line of David. So he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, he said, how is it that David, inspired in our Old Testament, says or calls him Lord? How does David, who's inspired in this moment by the Spirit, Speaking by the Spirit, he says, inspired by the Spirit. 
call him Lord. Verse 44 of Matthew 22. For the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one would dare say a word in reply from that day on. No one asked him any more questions. You see, they knew what was going on here. Jesus quotes from this moment, passage, where Melchizedek is mentioned as the priestly ruler, where David talks about the Lord saying to his Lord, and what he's saying is, as David's talking about the Messiah, and the Messiah is the Son, how can the Son be greater than the King? The Son is never greater than the Father, never in Jewish history. The Son is never greater than the dead. How can David be saying, the Lord said to my Lord, and then speaking about his descendant, who we think, this is one of the great Psalm 110, Messianic Psalms that the Jews claim. So how can David be speaking about a Lord when he's the Lord? He should never be addressing someone that way. Well, the only way it can happen is if the Lord coming from David is greater than David himself. And of course, the one coming from David, the Messiah, is the incarnate Christ, God the Son, who takes his deity and shows up. And that is what he's speaking of. David knew that the one who would come from him to be the Messiah had to be greater than him. Abram knew that the one who had shown up Melchizedek on that day was greater than him, that he had a greater connection to God than him, that he served as priest and king, the God Most High. Abram was neither priest nor king. And in that moment, he knew that Melchizedek, who he had come into contact with, was greater than him. David picks up on that, and David knows that the one who will come to bring salvation, though he is the great king, the ruler of an entire nation that is the most conquering nation, the most superior nation on the planet at that time, David says, the one coming from me will be greater than I. He will be my Lord. And he is my Lord. And the only way that's possible is if this was the Lord who incarnated himself and remained the Lord. So Hebrews 7 picks up on this and mentions Melchizedek. He's mentioned in, in Hebrews 5 as well, but I, didn't, I do not have time to get into all of this. But I am going to read a bit of Hebrews 7. So Melchizedek was the king of Salem and priest, God Most High. This is verse 1. He met Abram, Abraham, uh, returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then, king of Salem means king of peace. He says, this man is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. That's what the author of Hebrews says. Now note this, verse 3. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. That's a pretty powerful sentence without father or mother without genealogy without beginning of days or end of life he resembles the son of god he remains a priest forever now some would suggest that that means he's a type of christ that we have no genealogy of him it doesn't mean there isn't one it means we have none and so because there is no genealogy it looks like he has no beginning and had no end he just shows up in the text um and so he's resembling the Son of God in that way. And so his priesthood has become this lasting priesthood. Some people say he's like a type of Christ. I would actually suggest he's likely the pre-incarnate Christ. He's Christ having shown up. This is a theophany where Christ shows up in the Old Testament. Abram recognizes how much greater this man is than him. Just think of it, he said. Verse 4, even the patriarch, Abraham, 
gave him a tenth of the plunder. He collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who has the promises. And without a doubt, the lesser blessed the greater. And then he goes on to talk about this new priesthood we need. If perfection, verse 11, could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law was given to the people established that priesthood, why then is there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. He wasn't from the line of Aaron. He was from the line of Judah. And in regard to the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. No priests came from the line of Judah. So how can Jesus be a priest? But what we have is even more clear if there's another priest like Melchizedek that appears. He says Jesus was not in the order of Aaron because the order of Aaron was incomplete. Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, who's without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of days, resembling the Son of God, remaining a priest forever. Verse 16. He is one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it's declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Just a few more verses. Now there have been many of those priests, verse 24, since death prevented them from continuing in office, but Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. And such a high priest truly meets our need. He is holy. He is blameless. He is pure. He is set apart from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. He is unlike any of the other high priests. He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sin once when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in their weakness. The oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Melchizedek was called both the priest and the king. And Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, is in the order and line of Melchizedek. He is priest and king. The role of the priest was to speak to God on the people's behalf, was to represent the people to God. The prophet represented God to the people. The priest represented people to God. And he said what's unique about Jesus is Jesus doesn't have to sac offer sacrifice for his sin. He didn't have any sin. He simply offered sacrifice for our sin. He is the greater priest. He is greater than the line of Aaron. He is greater than the Levitical priesthood. He is in the order of Melchizedek. This is Jesus, God the Son. This is who he is. And his priesthood, the one that Christ brings is based on the power of his indestructible life. That sin and Satan and death threw everything they could at him. But the power of death could not hold him down. The enemy could not in any way defeat him and sin could not accuse him because he'd never sinned. So on the third day, the power of the Father raised him to life again as King of kings, Lord of lords, priest, prophet, and king Reigning on high for all of eternity, he has an indestructible life. That's who Jesus is in the order and line of Melchizedek, just so you guys can come up. So three things quickly. One, 
Jesus has an indestructible life because his priesthood is based on his ancestry. And because his ancestry is one in the order and line of Melchizedek, Jesus, who is God come down, Jesus, who is God the Son, is able to completely save. He cloaked his deity with humanity as the only one who could come and defeat sin and Satan and death and be indestructible too. He fulfills all the law's requirements. That's why he's called in verse 26, holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and he's exalted. And lastly, he provides perfectly for our salvation. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. You know, some people will say that you can do whatever you want and be whoever you want. It's just not true. None of us could ever be the Savior. Many try. They look for all kinds of ways to save themselves. All kinds of ways to make their way to God. Every other religion is about you earning your way to God. Mormonism is about you earning your way to God. Jehovah Witness, you earning your way to God. Muslims, you earning your way to God. Hinduism, you earning your way to God. Every other religion, Sikhism, you earning your way to God. God knew it would never work. And so God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, holy, blameless, without sin, now exalted, so that he could take us to God. He represents us perfectly because in his humanity he never sinned, but he offered his life for our sin. And when Abram recognized he was with greatness, he was humbled. He received Melchizedek's blessing. He gave him a tenth of what he had. And he fellowshiped with him with bread and wine. When we come face to face with Jesus, we recognize we're in the presence of greatness. We repent of our sin because only he can save us. All the other things we thought could save us can't, but he can. Is that not great news? He can. Completely. He is able to save completely anyone who comes to him, to God through him. And he's always there to intercede for us. Today he's there to intercede for you. Today he's there on your behalf crying out to the Father for you. In whatever you are struggling with in your time of need, whether it be practical or spiritual, he is there interceding for you. So trust in him. Rely on him. Depend on him. Pray to him. He is the priest in the order of Melchizedek who is the great king, the Lord Jesus himself. Will you pray with me? We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that your priesthood was so entirely different than the line of Aaron, the Levitical line, that you are in the order and line of Melchizedek, and we thank you. We thank you that you were sinless, that you were blameless, that you are not like us as sinners. We thank you that you had and have an indestructible life we thank you that you are able to completely save anyone who comes to God through you. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you still, to this day, intercede for us. May we be humbled by your greatness. 
May we be humbled by your provision. And like Abram, who when he came face to face with God, set up an altar to worship you in these closing moments, may we worship you, Lord Jesus, for your salvation. Because it is complete and it is great. And it is your gift to us. Thanking you in Jesus' name. Amen.